Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We've got two great guests for you this week, artist Alia Ali and historian Molly Rogers. First up, Alia Ali. Her work is on view at two U.S. art museums, one that's open and one that's waiting for a governmental okay. In Louisiana, the New Orleans Museum of Art is exhibiting Alia Ali Flux through November 15th. Ali's Flux series uses wax print fabric, a textile with roots in at least three continents, to examine colonialism, migration, economic systems, and more. The exhibition was curated by Katie Fole. In California, the Benton Museum of Art at Pomona College is showing Ali's work in a Projects series exhibition. Like other Los Angeles County museums, the Benton is closed to the public as a result of the pandemic. However, the county seems to be moving toward allowing reopenings in the next few weeks or the next month or so, and the Benton has plans to offer visits by appointment in the near future. Also, the Benton will offer four bodies of Ali's work, three at the museum and one which will soon be streaming on the Benton's new website. Ali's work addresses the politicization of the human body, colonialism, imperialism, and sexism in photographs, installations, sound, and video that prominently feature textiles. Ali is, as she puts it on her website, quote, a Yemeni, Bosnian, U.S. multimedia artist who has traveled to 67 countries, lived in and between seven, and who has grown up among five languages. On the second segment, Molly Rogers will join me to discuss the new book, To Make Their Own Way in the World, The Enduring Legacy of the Zeely Daguerreotypes. Before we get to this week's guests, would you believe we're doing a live audience show in the middle of a pandemic next week? Okay, yes, it's over Zoom, but still, it's pretty cool. Here are the details. The Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska is hosting a live audience man podcast taping with Radcliffe Bailey and me next Thursday, November 5th. It'll be at 6 p.m. Central, so 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Bailey's work is presently on view in the Sheldon exhibition Person of Interest, an exploration of portraiture from the late 19th century to the present. It's up through July 3rd, 2021. You can join Bailey and me on Thursday, November 5th by registering at go.unl.edu slash radcliffe-bailey. There are links to that registration site on the Sheldon's website and on this week's show page at manpodcast.com. Hope you can join us. Alia Ali, after the break. Take a virtual drive down Sunset and experience the iconic boulevard through the lens of artist Ed Ruscha. Featuring more than 65,000 photos taken between 1965 and 2007, this interactive online exhibition guides us from downtown L.A. to PCH, past sites like the Cinerama Dome, Roxy Theater, and Chateau Marmont. Watch the storefronts, billboards, and cars change over time. Search for a favorite neighborhood or landmark. Learn more and start driving at 12sunsets.getty.edu. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton McDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American abstract artists such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in abstract expressionism's The Club. 
Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Aliyah Ali, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Do you remember when you first started thinking that textiles could or should be central to your work? It was in 2015 and I was in Marrakesh and it was in in the kind of dead of the heat, basically. It was in the summer, probably July. So it's like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And I was invited to be a part of this show that was organized by Arts Connect International out of Boston. And there was a show called Shades of Inclusion. And thinking about, immediately when I started thinking about the word shades, I mean, I always start from language. And thinking about the word shades and inclusion, how can you really understand inclusion if you don't think about exclusion? And looking around the house, you know, I think it was something that I was so accustomed to and that I was so used to having, but I have a huge collection of textiles, partially textiles that were given to me and passed down by my grandmothers and my mother and others that I just am drawn to and I just collected. So I started essentially playing with them. And and looking back from that, I would say that that's really when it started becoming Uh, Really, And that's when I made Cast No Evil, which is my first series. And that's where I guess to answer your question directly, it became about a part of my work. But I think the story of textiles actually, you know, leads back all the way to when I was growing up in Yemen, to the fabric markets, to when I travel, being really drawn to how people express themselves through textiles. My grandmother, who made her textiles as a form of documentation, and, and eventually I kind of realized that as a, it's not only one material, it's not just the textile itself, but the patterns are also a material, a part of, that have become a huge part of my work as a language. And has just, through that, many doors have opened into other series. And it's become a medium through which I am able to talk about a lot more complex ideas. So that sounds like it was five years after your undergrad experience that you had or you came to an understanding that you could bring something from your family and your life into what you wanted to do as an artist and as a professional. Yeah, I would say that. And I think actually during those five years, I graduated in 2009. And then, as you know, this was during the economic crisis. And I ended up going to Morocco, was only supposed to stay there for two months, but, you know, stayed there now. Now I still have a home there 10 years on. And during that time, I was actually working more in arts administration. So I was working with the Marrakesh Biennial and with TEDx Marrakesh. So not really, not really, I wouldn't say working as an artist. And I think a lot of that also has to do with maybe being a child of immigrants, you know, needing security, really sort of, yeah, looking for security and comfort in a different way, which was very monetary. And there was a shift that had happened where I sort of realized if I'm, you know, if I'm searching for money, I'm not going to be happy. But if I'm searching for what makes me happy, I'm going to have everything, you know. And there was that shift of when th- those experiences really taught me a lot, you know, working with other artists, working with curators, with preparators, trying to, you know, understanding how things work, how people work, how production works, being exposed to different types of material, which I was not necessarily exposed to in undergrad. 
And so that only ended up helping me eventually settling on my own thoughts of becoming an artist and being an artist. So textiles have been primary within your work for five or six years now. I want to jump into a series you made in 2017 called Borderland. And we'll have images on manpodcast.com and we'll have a link to your website with many more images. But Borderland features, and I'm you know, going to simplify dramatically here for the purposes of the question, it features bright textiles and the background is black, flat black. And then within a couple years, within really just two years, that black background is, is gone, is out of your work. And in subsequent series, the backgrounds are bright, visually loud, and they play off the textiles that appear to be being worn by someone standing in front of them. What did that shift in how you grounded or backed the foregrounded textiles? What did that shift from black backgrounds to colorful backgrounds mean for you? You know, it was whatever the textiles were. So when, as I was going, um, I'd spent almost a year going to different parts of the world to 11 regions, actually working with masters to try to understand spending five to six weeks with them, trying to understand what this lexicon of patterns that they were creating, what it meant and also the process in which they made it. And I was following different processes and trying to understand them, not only in relation to each other, but also to my own my own understanding of our indigenous textiles in Yemen. And I think that there's a, as, as much as coming into, when we would sort of select the textiles, you know, I would be sort of interested or I would kind of crave to put two textiles together, but they don't necessarily go together according to that community. And so I realized that I was making these, I was sort of pushed to make these, I was trying to make these aesthetic choices, but there was, there's so much more and there's so much more depth to them. And really the purpose of Borderland was to give a, to make a portrait of what that community was producing, not by the way that they look by their eyes or by the color of their face, but what, what their hands and their imagination was producing and continues to produce. And in that regard, I would find these really exquisite textiles and the masters would sit under their own textiles. And I thought that there was a power in highlighting them. Having said that, when I was photographing in these different places, there was there were a lot of things that I couldn't control. So for example, even though I had this sort of light studio that I was taking around with me, there was not consistent electricity. There was, you know, in, in order to kind of capture some of the, you know, some of the fabrics, perhaps the way that they could, you know, it wasn't easy to set up, let's say a quote unquote studio, right? That I was perhaps used to in the mountains of Sapa, for example. And so having this black background really allowed me to focus individually on these textiles and and also give sort of this consistency in terms of making it a series. So the whole series is 172 photographs, but I would say I probably took thousands of photographs. And even though I would try sometimes to put a background, some there are some photographs that do have the background. And for me, I always think of those as, as the land, right? So there's the border, and there's the land. And for the border part, I think that also spoke to the black in the back. And when I present the work, in most cases, it's actually presented on black walls, thinking about how these photographs, and they don't also have glass on them. They have a Hanamula UV laminate on it. So just thinking about how 
there's no reflection of the individual looking at it. And really with that black background, these fabrics just stand out so, so exquisitely that I think it become, they become more of a window than a mirror. So people can reflect with them rather than being literally reflected in them. Yeah, I should have noted that not all of the Borderland pictures have black backgrounds. Some do. And indeed, uh, some of them are themselves. The pictures are black and white. So kind of jumping off from that idea, your Flux series are brightness times a thousand. I mean, they are spectacularly loud, visually complicated, colorful pictures. They're almost too bright to look at, right? I mean, it's kind of like looking at a small JPEG of a big Bridget Riley painting where where your eyes are just overwhelmed. <laughs> so so this is all a long way of saying I very much sense that you worked to have that, that that overwhelming overwhelmingness is a feature and not a bug. What about overwhelming the viewer in such a way was important to these recent works? I think there was also maybe... Um... Uh, going from Borderland into Flux, there there were many different choices and decisions that I was thinking about. But one of them, perhaps I maybe chose to be be more honest with myself. You know, I grew up in Yemen, like you had mentioned, and I, I you know, going to, to Istanbul, going to places like uh, Lahore in, in Pakistan and in India. And that's that's how we grew up. And it was very normal to have patterns everywhere you know, not only the upholstery, but in the carpets, in the walls, you know, and all most of that was textile and, you know, or going to mosques or these beautiful old madrasas, which are completely adorned, not to mention the clothing yourself in that. And so it doesn't, to me, necessarily feel as so overwhelming, but having also spent so much time and also being from the U.S. and spending time in the West, you know, that's quite opposite. And and perhaps the the other is not appreciated, right? So when you have all these pattern among pattern, you know, it tends to be almost demeaned, I think, as something quote unquote decorative. When in fact, they're just by that notion, just understanding that there is in fact no, there's an erasure that's happening with all the meaning that goes behind each of those patterns and textiles. You know, I think to give that sort of, to, to push it and give this bold, you know, mixing of patterns, creates this sensation, like you're mentioning, that really may, might create that discomfort where your eyes vibrate. And also, you know, from before that, when I was making Borderland, it was really a part of an entire installation. I would bring textiles that the masters had produced, and it would create a sort of collaboration where I would make these in architectural interventions and upholster the space as well, the columns and, you know, benches and seats. And so people actually could touch the fabrics. And in this regard, I thought, well, why not make it a part of the artwork? And also with Borderland, you know, once work would start moving, I realized, you know, part of it was done because I would work with my, the printer that I work with, Cameron Wood in New Orleans, who's really incredible. After I made the photograph, then he would print them. And for these series, for Flux, I thought it was really important that my hand physically touched every single piece that comes out. And so one thing to know about these works is that, you know, while they're mounted onto aluminum and they have this Hanemüller laminate, they're actually inlaid into a box frame, which is upholstered with the textile that is inside the 
that's inside the photograph. And rather than, you know, kind of playing on that, this idea where the black earlier in Borderland really allowed these patterns to stand out. In fact, pattern on pattern, depending on the colors and the usage and the way you place the patterning can also, in fact, create even more of this pop, you know, and, and a three-dimensionality. So the photographs themselves within the frames, the frames are, you know, three-dimensional. They push out into into space. But the photographs themselves, the, the loudness of the color, the loudness of the pattern, it almost feels like those colors and those patterns are, are racing to push against the picture plane, that there's a, a near but not total elimination of, of depth in the pictures. Are you interested in the flattening of space or is that just inevitable given the, I'm about to use a horrible pun, material with which you work? You know, I think that's interesting because it's something that I'm coming to right now. And in the photographs themselves, I think that there's that tension, which I'm really interested in, particular in terms of what flux the state, you know, writing is a big part of my work and what the statement around flux is. It's not a comfortable story. We look at these wax prints as something that they're extraordinarily saturated, they're beautiful, but there's a lot of very difficult history that came into into what brought them into existence, you know, through the colonial trade routes and the Dutch. And and so that's also a statement that I write in the website. And I think certain photographs, I mean, of course, now I've been working a lot, you know, there was Borderland, Cast No Evil, Lisa and I Am Not, and of course, Flux, where I, I deal with different types of textiles, but again, always, they're always dawned on people. And that some of the themes and some of what I'm interested, what I've been interested in working on for the past two years really do follow through. But I realize that the material doesn't, even though I'm sort of people acknowledge me as a photographer, I think of myself as an artist. And that's because I also have I want to have the freedom also in thinking about different type of materials. And now having finished, I just completed my graduate studies at CalArts. And I think these last two years, that was also what was quite interesting, that it didn't nece- that I didn't necessarily have to stick for myself. I gave myself a lot more leeway in terms of experimenting with film and I should say video, right? And multi-channel installation and sculpture. And I have to say that perhaps Flux, you know, every work that I do, always lends itself to what I would like to do next because the ideas are brewing and some of the work is still being made as these series have been coming out. So photography, I mean, in that regard, not only as a material, it's still, I still base myself in the visual narrative, right? And language is like the visual language. It just manifests in very, in different ways. And I think particularly now it makes sense that I'm going into film because how can you really understand film Uh, video, I should say, without understanding a single frame. And thinking about textile as well, you know, even when I'm editing the videos that I've been working on, thinking about how on the timelines when I'm loading it, you know, into Premiere, they also look like textiles, you know, essentially since they're experimental, weaving together different footage and sounds. And also, you know, in terms of some of the things that I create, you know, the content that I create, it still really very much stems back from textile from dyes as in pigment right and they may seem completely different but in fact they're extremely connected we've been talking about textiles and you mentioned the concept and the idea of decoration and in the context of installation are there artists whose use of 
textiles or reference to textiles in, in their work, whether it's a painter or painters or sculptors or artists who work in installation? Are there artists whose address of textiles or decoration you particularly think about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think textile has actually been particularly my choice of, yeah, my material, but I would also say language. But I think it's also how certain ideas have been communicated. I mean, I think about Eda Natsui, Hassan Hajjaj, Munir Fatmi, Munahatoum, Bushra Khalili, Michael Rakowitz. And I guess it's not only right now in, in terms of textile, but also in terms of ideas like futurism. So Colleen Smith has been really influential to me. And Mercedes Dorame, you know, and there, there are aspects, of course, that you pull from. But I think those right now are the ones that come really strikingly to mind. I also wanted to talk about the presence of people in your work. When we think we're seeing a person within your work, is it always a person or are you sometimes using mannequins or an armature? In fact, it's there is always a person. Yeah. And I think that also goes to that goes to the relationship that I have not only with the textile, but with the person itself. You know, I mean, Ariella Azale talks about how a photograph is a social contract that you, you know, that you share. And I think the people who are revealed in the more traditional sense of how we think about what that means to be revealed, um, to actually show, I'm still in touch with almost all of them unless they've passed. And I think, yeah, there's an intimate relationship that happens because you're actually covering someone, you know, and this trust of being able to be able to just drop the fabric. And once I stage it, essentially, once I kind of create the portrait, I take a port, I take the portrait, but then I also ask them to move under the textiles. And I think sometimes those are, in fact, most of the time, the more interesting photos. Could I, could I interrupt for a quick second? What do you mean by move under the textiles? Well, I, I mean, you know, textile also, she, you know, inter, under light, I think it's most magical when it moves. It doesn't necessarily, we sure we find, you know, fabrics, especially special ones that are encased or, but there's a movement to fabric. And I think thinking, for example, going back to Borderland, you know, when I would wrap the individuals, the masters in the textile or people of their family or atelier. One, not one, I should say, not only is the, the folding is also cultural. So I would also work with people of how the fabric is folded, how it should fall. And there, you know, there are certain, for example, types of silks or even silk ikats, which are a little bit, in fact, they almost feel starchier as opposed to what it would be on cotton. And I can understand and kind of look at how the light plays off of the textile, but really it's the sitter who understands how it should be moved. You know, when you think about some of the saris that, that were photographed in Udaipur in Rajasthan, India, you know, there's, and the way that they're folded, that's actually what makes these textiles come alive. And sometimes there were certainly those photos where I would set them up as, you know, I would ask them to not move until I set up the photograph. But there are some really, some of the most magical photos that came out of it were the ones while they were in movement. So I would say, please move, you know, and they would slowly move their arms and their heads and, and move in it. And in some cases, you know, they would stand. And yeah, I think I got one of my most iconic images for Borderland like that. So, so you are 
pressing the shutter button as they're still moving. So I think what I hear you saying is that you're not waiting for them to stop moving sometimes, that you are capturing them in the process of moving. That's right. And sometimes if I really want to get, uh, you know, I, I might say, you know, please stop or can you go back? But in most cases, yeah, it's in the movement. So you have been making pictures now for five, six, seven years in which the people in the pictures are not visible as themselves. Was it ever an issue for you or something you had to think through that you were, you know, not erasing them, that's not the right word, but that that you were showing them and not showing them, that they're, in, in, in a certain way, their individual humanness was separated from us or invisible to us? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is also a, a question of what it what it meant for me um, and the conversations that I had with indifferent individuals, but what it meant for me to grow up in Yemen where it was a communal upbringing and it wasn't about individual identity. It was about the identity of our tribe. It was the identity about who we are as a people, as we are as a family. And coming to the States when we moved here and also, you know, in the UK, in Wales, I mean, there's a really different sense of what that means to what does it mean to be seen? And when I, for example, when I went back to Yemen for the first time to make the film for my undergrad called Al Qabila, the tribe, you know, I asked, I really want it to be around the women. And I remember my grandmother sort of being really annoyed is a soft way of saying, you know, why do we, why do we have to show our, why, why do we have to expose our privacy for someone else to understand us? You know, why is it that we have to show our faces? And really, so from that conversation on, it makes me think that this has already happened. We have people have tried to show their, you know, individual faces, but as it be, you know, parachuting from outside and just grabbing what photos can be. And, you know, there's a long history of that in the National Geographic. And I think about when photographers who are certainly iconic for certain photographs, but how is it that they expressed Yemen? Steve McCurry, for example, when he came to Yemen, only photographs that have come out with photographs of children and of women who may not have been of specific classes, which we unfortunately still have, but I mean, it's a part of, you know, it's a part of how the society is structured. And so it didn't really give a good impression and that there's this immediate othering because it depends on who the, where the gaze is coming from. And I think I was much more, I am more interested in when I went and I would of course talk to the masters or people from the atelier and I would always show the photographs. I would bring the camera in the first week so that they see it because really acknowledging that the camera is a weapon as well. You know, it's not just a tool to make photographs. It also shoots and captures. And and that's really important of how that becomes a part of this notion of making these photos in collaboration. And in many cases, people, I remember Bao, who I worked with, who was from the Black Hmong community in what is Northern Vietnam, although they see, they sort of go, you know, it's around the borderland of Laos, China and Vietnam. You know, and she was very clear. She said, there's no what is going to be seen of me because she's so, so used to people coming with photographs of them, but not buying their wares, you know, not buying these incredible textiles, just getting these handmade, you know, bracelets and people who would snap a photo to get that National Geographic photo and then leave. 
And, and I really wanted to subvert that. And it's the same when I was living in Morocco, tourists will come in all the time and they see, you know, a really beautiful Amazigh woman uh, with tattoos on her face and they want to photograph them. And then they're shocked when the person says, well, pay me, you know, because they know that the photo will then become on a postcard. There is that capturing and taking. And for me, I was much more interested in seeing how do we, how do we look at specific indigenous communities like my own through the creation, what I mentioned earlier, through what they make and through their imagination and also their patterns are essentially many of these communities are perhaps illiterate in reading and writing in their script because they're oral histories, but it doesn't mean that they don't document because they're extremely literate in their motif. And so giving a space for how they would acknowledge their own history, their experiences, their documentation on their own terms, not through a colonizer's lens or through a tourist's lens. In looking back at what my, you know, trying to, especially now when I'm thinking about Yemeni futurism, you know, you really have to draw, of course, on the past to start even thinking or imagining that. And I think even looking at, at texts that so much so much has been erased because it's been done through another person's gaze in another language because the translation, you know, the damage is already done essentially. The translation happens and by the time that it hits the paper, it's just really, there's so much loss, there's so much nuance that's lost. And I think that, you know, the patterns that I've seen have just been, you know, they're not only as one could consider that are cultural, you know, religious or they're extremely cosmic. They're also scientific and the way in which they're made and, and how long the dye, you know, hits them. What from the plants, you know, what of the earth around is being used to dye these textiles? And those were some of the conditions that I made for myself when I was photographing Borderland, which is actually what gave way to why flux wouldn't work, is that for Borderland, all the textiles were made of the land by people in the land. And, you know, it would be sometimes tempting because you'd see these incredible patterns printed in China, right? And so one of the, that's how I also got into working with the wax prints is because that was not possible. Those wax prints are not made on the land. And even though they're considered African, they're, you know, made in Holland. So when you think about an abduction of, you know, of language, an abduction of story, most of what we consider to be these quote unquote African textiles are quote unquote Dutch textiles. I mean, I think I, I've addressed that in my statement of the naming, you know, how do you name a textile that has five different names, you know, and who is in, and it's made, you know, is it's not defined by its maker, it's defined by its consumer, which also creates a really difficult, difficult scenario because it, it, it continues to be colonial, even as beautiful as they are. There's this sort of attraction, like you said, you know, coming to the photographs, but also there is a disturbance. So speaking of the brightness and the intensity and almost the confu visual confusion within the Flux pictures, the new work in Pomona, Love, the Love series, is in some ways the opposite of that. So it's very bright. It's very saturating, both on the print itself and the way the color comes forward. But there are two kinds of legibility in the Love pictures that aren't in other series. The outline of the body and the separation of the person you're photographing from the background, I think, is clearer in, in the love work. But you're also, but there's a different kind of legibility, the legibility of words that are on both the textile 
a person is wearing, but also on on the background. Do you think of this newer work as being differently legible? And was something within that important? Something within the idea of legibility important? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I do. So the way that this work kind of came to fruition, I've been thinking about this for a while. Victoria Sancho-Lobis and Rebecca McGrew, the director and curator, respectively, of at the Benton Museum, who I've been working with, generously offered, it's a new building. They gave me a space right at the entrance. It's one of three spaces that I'm presenting there. And it's, yeah, it's when people enter and they commission, they said, we'd like to commission you to do something here. And, you know, at this point, I guess there's also a little bit of, you know, in a part of art, there's a little bit of risk taking and well, a lot of it, I would say, but up to this point, I hadn't really been making my own textiles. I'd learned certain things from the masters while I was on, you know, when I was doing Borderland and also like in the last two years of experimenting, but I'd never made my own patterns and it just seemed the really more organic way to step for, you know, to, to do the next, the next step, I guess, the next series. And this one, um, rather than making patterns, and but also thinking about how, how you're right, how, you know, Arabic words also function very, Arabic functions even aesthetically very differently from other languages in this regard, I would say, you know, in comparison, let's say to English and how we use it, calligraphy is a huge part of our identity and our expression, again, where it's sort of demeaned by the West as something very decorative, but in fact, it's something transcendent, you know, there is meaning within these writings. So thinking about that, but also thinking about the meditative nature. And so this work was produced during COVID. So what I do is just to clarify is that I made these textiles. I printed the word, I actually hand painted the word love, hope, which the same root for the word hope is also used for the word seed. So essentially to grow. So I painted these textiles and then photographed uh, someone beneath them and then stenciled them and painted by hand hand painting them but with stencils on the wall so that again it creates this rather than there being a frame it's actually framed on the wall which the first wall you know was the white wall was broken and a blue was put on and so it's in this neon orange and yellow paint i was really interested in how arabic has been seen i mean this is since september 11th we moved here in 98 but during september 11th my father had come back from work and he about two weeks after and he was fired or let go illegally. And he immediately said, you know, we're going to stop speaking Arabic for a child who both their her parents, you know, both my parents are linguists and growing up thinking that language is a, another, every language, you know, is another soul that you have to cut that off um, and really start thinking that, again, language is not only a tool, but it's something that becomes this threat. And Arabic has sort of been seen as this violent language, particularly in the West, where there is where even Arab, Arab, you know, Arabic speakers have to immediately do this code switching when you're thinking about places of transportation. And, you know, I, I never speak and I make sure I never have anything written in Arabic still to this day when I enter a plane, like an airplane. And it's not only me, you know, just a couple of years ago, somebody was pulled off an airplane because she had a work about Syrian art. And it was in, you know, it was in Arabic. And so I think 
you know, if there, there are these words that have been manipulated by, you know, by the media, how it's been sort of propagandized and, and also by different groups and factions, like the word, the only word that we have for student, we have other, well, we have like elementary school student, but which is Talmid, but is Talib and Taliba, which of course goes to Taliban, right? So now this language evolves and it becomes this word that is really abducted by a terrorist group. And when you think of the word madrasa and you type madrasa into Google, transliterated, and you look at the images, it literally describes in Google that it is essentially where people like the Taliban go and train. <laughs> and in fact, the word, you know, and train it's essentially a terrorist training camp when in fact, if I say Ana Taliba fil Madrasa, somebody could, you know, by those say that I am a terrorist in a ter- in a training camp when really all I'm saying is I'm a student at school. And when you, when you think about how, how there's just this strong disconnect by such peaceful words, if there was one word that I would want people to, that I'd want to kind of, activate, but also that people can recognize non-Arabic speakers, that they can recognize, read, and be able to say, and hopefully spread would, you know, be the word for love, something there's so much more to offer. There's so much more in Arabic than it just being considered, quote, unquote, you know, you know, decorative, or that it's violent, and that we, you know, these kind of even the Orientalist themes that play out not only in politically, but certainly in the art world. And um, so perhaps it's a, you know, it's a point of departure, I would say. And I found it really amazing that they invited me to do it at the at the entrance. And it is quite different as well, because I've also made multiples of this. So there are different, just to explain it, there are different colors. So for example, it's the same image, but they are actually in different color, that, that image is in different colors and they sit next to each other. And that's the first time that I've done that, so that it's multiples of multiples. So far, we've been talking about mostly very colorful works with very bright textiles. Last year, you made a series called Under Thread, which features thread, which is both made from the same stuff textiles are made out of, but which is also required to make textiles, if you will. I say oversimplifying the the, the process of making. (laughs) So we'll have images from under thread on manpodcast.com and we'll also show how you've installed the work. I have read that you think of under thread as a particular address of where you mostly live now and will live over the next year and that is the United States. How is the work an address of the United States and why did you want to use thread in the way you use it in the pictures as an address of the United States? So one of the reasons that I, what the kind of the most important reason why I decided to go to graduate school was because I, at that point, it was four years into the war in Yemen. And there have been wars in Yemen, and you would think that it would you know, maybe settle down, but in fact, it was only getting worse. And I think there's this moment for artists, let me speak for myself, where I think there's a responsibility to address certain things, to give them a platform. And sometimes it could be a burden. And for me, it was a burden that I wasn't doing that, that wasn't taking that responsibility. You know, there was, it was kind of itching at me. And I realized it was quite important for me to be among a cohort and among faculty who could help me look at this, at the work and what I'm producing before diving in through, 
from another perspective because it was just simply too close to me. And that's what happened during my undergrad. I made a film that was just simply too close and difficult to see outside of it. So to be in conversation. And right before I started on August 9th, 2018, there was a bombing of a school bus while with 42 children on a field trip in Lahyan, Yemen. And it's called the Lahyan Massacre because it was an inaccurately targeted missile that was launched by the Saudis and was produced, that was manufactured by Lockheed Martin. And from that moment, I was quite obsessed with trying to find the victims, the names of the victims, in order to announce them. And I'd spent the next few months working with a journalist from the New York Times, Robert Wirth, and Nasser Rabi'i from Yemen. And we'd sort of, Nasser had helped me track down these names and then, of course, checking them. And at one moment, also trying, once I had these names of victims, I also thought I wanted to bring the names of the, the culprits. And so the list was getting longer and longer from, of course, Trump, but also, unfortunately, Obama. And, of course, weapons manufacturing companies, lists of lobbyists, lists of politicians. And, of course, the culprit came down to myself as well as a U.S. taxpayer. And I really wanted to focus on this relationship of the United, you know, there's a parasitic relationship between the United States and Yemen, aside from oil. But in this case also, which is really perpetuating and continues to perpetuate the war are these weapons manufacturing companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, General Dynamics, Bay Systems, and so on. And those were the five that I chose to focus on. And all the while, while I was trying to collect different types of timelines in different languages and from different organizations and, you know, I it create I was creating essentially this really huge map. So I should say that my undergraduate was in political science and Middle Eastern studies. And I've always been interested in that because at one point I wanted to become a lawmaker, but, you know, artist, why not? And I ended up creating this map around my studio and I really felt like it was, I was connecting all of them by thread, all of the information by different colored thread. And it got really quite overwhelming, I have to say, because of not only the things that I was seeing on the media, that was really purposefully being ignored or censored. But I was also following Twitter feeds of Yemenis because I can, you know, I can because I speak Arabic and seeing what they were actually bearing witness to was starkly different from what was being communicated in the news. And so I also wanted to bring those to light. And but it got really quite overwhelming because the only thing I was seeing day in and day out were bodies, limp brown and black bodies, you know, and I think I had to break from it and go back to what I was a little bit comfortable with, which was making photographs of myself. Because I should say a lot of the photographs of the textiles before, like all of Cast No Evil, when I initially started, was I was photographing myself under the textiles. Let me me jump in just to be clearer here. It's you we are seeing in the underthread pictures. That's correct. And so from this point, I was really also... As we were, as we've been talking, talking about the beauty of, of of how the textile, you know, how textile is a is a reflection, you know, is an object that reflects the culture. But what happens when the culture is systematically being erased, like it is in Yemen, you know? And at one point, I was taking photographs of the Yemeni dresses because who, you know, who cares if it's being erased if nobody knows what's at stake, if nobody knows 
what Yemen has to offer, what it has offered, what it does stand for. And I think there was this quite literally unraveling that was happening to me, but also, you know, it's the first time that I showed my face in in any of the work. And so using thinking about the thread that had connected these different this different information and you know, I was also thinking about that in terms of all this information, this this sort of obfuscated how how we how we even myself as a native Yemeni understand what is happening and trying to kind of trying to clarify it and create more like perhaps linear information. And I started thinking about a myth that we have around a spider that it was actually in the Quran, but I like to think about it as this beautiful myth where the prophet was running away from people who were trying to capture him and an angel tells him to hide in a cave. And so he does, and this spider weaves this web in front of it, in front of him, and uh, at the entrance. And when the people come, they see that, you know, he would have broken it if he was inside, so he couldn't be inside. And they were mesmerized by this gorgeous web. So they move on, and though eventually he so he has to break in order to get out, he has to break the thing that's protecting him. And, and so he breaks the web. And in fact, for us as Muslims, we're never allowed to kill a spider. And I, and I like that. I mean, I'm not religious, but I am culturally Muslim. And I think I, th I think about that even when we think about weavers and textile and what does protection mean. And I lend that also to how essentially, you know, the United States should, you know, we and it, it came also at different times of how we should be protected or, or governments in general. It's not only the United States, except how they should protect us. But in fact, they don't. You know, you see this in Yemen where everyone has to tribes are taking care of themselves. And here, at least I feel very fortunate in one sense that I have a blue passport an America, you know, a US passport because I can be critical of it. And uh, so these photographs ended up becoming under threat as of course, playing on this no notion of under threat, ended up becoming this gestural intervention amidst all this information that I collected on my the walls of my studio, which I brought into a binder and organized it into a binder called Conflict is More Profitable Than Peace, which is actually the title of the article that Robert Worth, that I first, uh, that he had first published on, on Yemen right when I'd come in, come into grad school and during the Lahan massacre. And so it's an ode, I think, to how he also properly, I think, did an excellent job at trying to push forth this, the right type of Inform well, the information, right? Some of the truth, at least, of, that was most consistent with what was on, what was happening on the ground. And now that's become a film as well. And I continue making these, I continue making these binders. And I was going to stop at the first one. It's 498 pages, so it has some of my writing. It has images from under thread. It also has all of these documents which rather than being redacted as we're so used to are actually being highlighted but i was quite moved when i thought about arthur jaffa's binders and that there's that labor that's just gone on for you know so long and it doesn't mean that a work has to be over because the conflict is not over right i think that's pretty that's really quite powerful so that that's an ongoing work and you know now we're entered into the sixth year of the crisis in Yemen, and it's not getting better. Aliyah Ali, thank you. Thank you so much. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, 
is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. This fall, visit the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University to view Tamashi Jackson, Love Roller Coaster, five new paintings centered on themes of voter suppression in Ohio's black communities. Also open now, Gretchen Bender's aggressive witness active participant, Steve McQueen's seldom seen neon series Remember Me, Taryn Simon's sound installation Assembled Audience, and the Micro Cinema and Community Resource Lounge Free Space. The latest edition of the Political Advertisement Project from Antoni Muntadas and Marshall Reese debuts October 26th. All can be experienced safely at the WEX through December 27th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. Along with Elisa Barbosh and Deborah Willis, my next guest, Molly Rogers, is the editor of To Make Their Own Way in the World, The Enduring Legacy of the Zeely Daguerreotypes. The book, which was co-published by Aperture and Peabody Museum Press, provides a broad historical and artistic consideration of 15 daguerreotypes of two enslaved women and five enslaved men, acquired by Harvard professor Louis Agassiz, in support of his notion that black men and women were inferior to whites. The book includes essays by historians such as Matthew Fox Amato, Manisha Sinha, and Sarah Elizabeth Lewis, as well as a 64-page presentation of new photography by Carrie Mae Weems. The book is available through Aperture, Amazon, and IndieBound for around 50 or 60 bucks. We'll have links to all three on manpodcast.com. On its website, the Peabody Museum at Harvard has made several chapters available for free. We'll have a link to that as well. And the Zeely daguerreotypes themselves may be viewed at the Peabody's collection website. Rogers is the author of Delia's Tears, Race, Science, and Photography in 19th Century America, and she's the associate director of the Center for the Humanities at New York University. Oh, by the way, a couple of project participants have previously been Man Podcast guests, including Carrie Mae Weems in 2012 and Sarah Lewis in 2016. Molly Rogers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. The so-called Zeely daguerreotypes themselves are, are reproduced in the new book, of course, and they are no doubt known to nearly all of our listeners. But they're familiar to most of us, myself included, through reproduction. You have held them in your hands. Can you give us some idea of whether that is a meaningfully different experience than the now routine encounter of them in reproduction? It is absolutely a different experience to hold them. First of all, a daguerreotype is a, is a very unusual photograph. It's an original. It's coated silver or silver-coated metal. It's highly reflective. It's a difficult image to see. You see yourself reflected in the image. 
you tip it slightly, you don't see the image at all. They're preciously bound in, in cases of leather and, and metal and glass. They are precious objects in themselves. And then, of course, these are very unusual. All daguerreotypes are unique. There's no negative involved. But these are doubly unique in that no other images quite like them exist. So to hold them and look at them and know, for example, that the very plate on which the image appears was in the very room of Alfred and Jem and, and the other people photographed. So the, it's a very humbling experience to hold them. It's very moving. It's also distressing to be looking at them, to be looking at their bodies, much in the way that the scientists did, who had them made, had these images produced. So there, there are many, many intellectual and emotional things at play when holding them. They're also surprisingly small. I think the the internet and publications tend to make them seem very big, but but they're they're precious again in in their their diminutive size. And one of the things I sort of insisted on when this book was first conceived was that we actually reproduce the images in actual size. So in the book on the on the left hand side is the full cased image actual size and then the right hand side is the portrait style image enlarged so you can see it better but they're small and you have to look very closely and very carefully and it's a very intimate very disturbing very moving experience and there is nothing like it for me anyway with daguerreotypes you really kind of have to tilt them back and forth to see them or if they are on a wall in front of you or in a case in front of you you kind of have to move your body side to side to see them, which all of which is to say that physical engagement with the object is required. As I mentioned in the introduction, it was Agassiz who had these images made or for whom these images were made. What do we know about how Agassiz used them and specifically did people hold them as you held them in response to what Agassiz was saying, telling an audience or, you know, of three people or more about them? Well, he he received them from South Carolina in the spring of 1850 and or given time to travel, maybe maybe closer to the summer. But he received them. And around that time, he did write an article in which he referred to his examinations of the people who were photographed. He doesn't refer to photographs themselves, the daguerreotypes themselves, but he may well have had them in his hands when he did that. Again, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that that fall, he was at a, an exceptional meeting of the Cambridge Scientific Club to which he belonged, which was a, a bunch of artists and professors sort of based around Harvard who would meet occasionally and eat lots of fancy food and, and discourse on topics of the day. And this one meeting, which features in John Stoffer's chapter in the book, this one meeting was called. There were no minutes taken, unlike other meetings. There, it, it seems to have been an unusual meeting, but it, it was called, and, and at the meeting, Agassiz showed the daguerreotypes. We don't really know what happened. We don't really know how people responded, but this is the one instance we know in which they were shown sort of semi-publicly. Obviously, this was a very special group of men, 
and men only, but it was a viewing, as it were, of the images and of the people in the images while Agassiz was talking about the ideas behind them. Um, now, these ideas were very controversial, so I would surmise that he didn't meet with a lot of acceptance and that the images themselves would have been shocking and unusual to his audience, even even to scientists. So, you know, John, John Stauffer very shrewdly concludes that the reason they were, the likely reason they were then put away, the daguerreotypes were put away and, and basically unknown until 1976 when they were discovered in the museum. The likely reason they were put away was, was because they didn't fit in really with the sort of conceptual understanding people had of science, of religion, of the ideas of the day. The Agassiz's ideas were too radical and he jeopardized his relationships with these men by showing them and by saying what he thought they showed. But this is this is the only example we know of them being sort of brought out and people holding them. And, and they would have had to pass them around because you can't stand up in front of a room and, and hold them up. And there were some newspaper articles that, that recounted that meeting, which is how we know about it. That, that reminds me of one of the really remarkable things about this moment is these pictures and what you just described kind of happened at the last possible moment in that the Compromise of 1850 is passed later that year in relations as they were between, say, South Carolina, where the pictures were made, and Boston it changed pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, time then is very different. And I think the, the sort of precipitous slide into the Civil War was, was very quick after the Compromise of 1850, yes. So just to ground us a bit, could you pick up the story from the rediscovery of the pictures at the Peabody at Harvard, to how this volume, this new book, came to be. The 15 daguerreotypes were discovered in a cabinet in the attic of the Peabody Museum in 1976. They were unusual. They were known to be unusual, you know, upon sight. One of the museum staff, Eleanor Reichlin, was the first person to do research on them. And considering this was well before the internet, she found a remarkable amount of information working from the handwritten labels that are attached to the daguerreotypes, which have information about the people in the pictures. So she was able to find out quite a bit, and she published some of that information. As I understand at the time, they were exhibited maybe once, I think, and they were in the press quite a bit. And then they kind of sort of disappeared. Not disappeared altogether, but but they were, you know, in the archive, as it were. Brian Wallace wrote an article about them in the late 80s, and he was the first person to publish all 15 of the images. And then Alan Trachtenberg published, I think, four of them in his book, Reading American Photographs, and that, I believe, was in the early 90s. And then I, I began researching them. I first learned about them in, from Alan Trachtenberg's book when I was a grad student. And then some years later, through a weird turn of events, ended up writing a book about them and, and doing nine years of research. And then I guess that's 2010, 10 years ago now, my book Delia's Tears came out. And it was shortly after that. And through that time, I, I had 
while I was doing research, I had been to the Peabody. I had seen the, the daguerreotypes on, on two different occasions, started to get to know the curatorial staff. And then the, the idea of holding workshops on the daguerreotypes was, was brewing. And I think the first workshop was held in 2011 or 2012 at Harvard at the Radcliffe Institute. And that was a gathering of, of very eminent scholars from many different fields to discuss the images, to discuss the different histories involved, the different players, the different discourses. And that then led a couple years later to another workshop with a slightly different membership. And that was when we started talking very specifically about turning these ideas, turning these perspectives, these multiple perspectives into an edited volume. And Lisa Barbash, Deb Willis, and I sort of self-identified that we wanted to, to be the editors, that we wanted to see this through. And the papers were workshop, and the project was an extraordinary collaborative experience from start to finish. We disagreed with each other on some points. We're all on the same page on other points. And the book is now a, an extraordinary testament to this kind of collaborative scholarship, which I think is rare from what I've seen and is really, I think, a great tribute to the seven people in the images. Near the beginning of your first essay, uh, there are two essays of yours in the book, you write that everyone involved in the project you just described believes that the Agassiz-Gibbs-Zeely project, if you will, was a failure. How was it a failure? I think that it fails in, and, and if I may speak for my colleagues, I think we think it fails in that photography is about specificity. Photography shows an individual. Even though these pictures are not rightly called portraits, the people were photographed without their consent, without their clothing, for nefarious purposes, even despite those facts, they do show us what Delia looked like. They do show us what George Fasina looked like. And that is extraordinary that we have these records. But it also is diametrically opposed to what the scientists, the, the doctor and the, the photographer, the daguerreotypist were trying to do. They were trying to represent types. They were trying to make these individuals stand for a large group of people. And and they don't do that. You know, they, they just absolutely don't do that. You you cannot, whether in reproduction or in person, you cannot look at these pictures and not see Drena for for herself. And you cannot not see Alfred for himself. And it's in that sense, I think the project that Agassiz had utterly failed. And maybe that was why they were put away, maybe partly. He just didn't, nobody saw in them what he wanted them to be, what he wanted people to see in them. But I think for those of us involved in this project, we we feel a very strong presence of individuals in these images. Reminds me, it's kind of amazing they didn't get thrown out, given that Harvard threw out a heck of a lot of pictures and photographs in the, in the 60s and 70s. Your quick to note in your introductory essay that these images have been used a lot in every medium and form of presentation imaginable. And for many decades now, they've been used in art, books, magazines, films, yada, yada, yada. At the risk of asking a really 
stupid question. Why have they been used so much? I mean, I get that they're at Harvard and Harvard has the resources to bring people to them and then to make them available. And maybe that's the answer, right? But is there more to it than that? I think probably there is. I think they are powerful images. We're not really used to images where people stare directly into the camera. It's very intense and very moving and disconcerting. And especially knowing that these people were enslaved, it, it feels like a very real encounter. And I think that that has something to do with it. I mean, I, I've seen them reproduced many times as sort of illustrations of slavery. So in a, alongside a book review to do with slavery, for example. And while I think that, that, that it works, that it, there's no reason they couldn't be used in that way, I do think a lot is lost in the sort of way that these images get reproduced in, and used in many different contexts. But I, I do think that people gravitate to them because they're powerful. They're, they're also exquisitely well-made images. They're very clear. They are beautiful images of a horrific subject, and, and that tension makes them very powerful and, and very attractive. As you noted a moment ago, you have written about these pictures for well over a decade now. You have constructed historical knowledge about them from the textual record, including for your 2010 book that you mentioned a moment ago. Its full title is Delia's Tears, Race, Science, and Photography in 19th Century America. And for that same book, you found a way of addressing what we don't and can't know about the people in these pictures. Anyone who writes about the past inevitably has to reckon with what she or he cannot know. And accepting that can be frustrating and can sometimes even derail a project. So kind of looking back over your period of engagement with these pictures, how did you think through what we don't know about Alfred, Delia, Drana, Fasina, Jack, Jem, and Renty, and how to make up for our absence of knowledge about them? That's the question that sort of taunted me from the start. And it, it just really struck me, especially because I, I came at these images from a history of photography perspective. So from looking at images and photographs and pictures and Yet everything in the archives was about everybody else. It was about the science and the scientists and the slaveholders and the politicians. And there was so little about the people in the images. And if I had all the, all the book chapters and articles and in journals that I had read that referenced the daguerreotypes, nobody, nobody as, as great as these pieces were, nobody asked the question, who were they? And that struck me as a glaring omission. It struck me as something that needed to be rectified. And not only did I set out to write a book, a full-length sort of treatment of these images, of how they came to be and, and what they could possibly mean, I also wanted to be sure to do everything I could, to do my best at putting the people in the images at the center of their story, because it's their story. Yet the archive doesn't permit that. And, you know, the way I resolved it back then was I wrote short fictional vignettes that accompanied each image to give a sort of counter caption to the picture, to give, even through imagination, a sense of agency, a sense of personhood, to, to really counter the science through imagination, through fiction, through a different kind of image making with fiction. And I don't know if that was completely successful, but it was the best way 
in addition to doing research about the people that only got so far, it was the best way I could think to mark out a space of absence, to mark out what we don't know. I filled it with what I thought maybe could be possible. I don't think that's sufficient. I don't think that's the only or, or even the best response. I think in, in this new book, in To Make Their Own Way in the World, Greg Hasinovich has done some absolutely stunning archival work and proven some of my, my research wrong, taken a lot of it further, and le we've learned more about the people in the images. And I think there's probably even still more out there. But trying to keep them central. And I personally, I'm really tired of writing about Agassi and talking about him. And I've started actually leaving his name out of the, the narrative when I write and talk about it. I just refer to him as the white scientist or the white professor. The fat foreigner. <laughs> you know, Emer Emerson's I've, phrase for him. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I don't want to tell his story anymore because that's out there. That's already out there. And that's not important. And I've told it enough times now that I am just really sick of it. And I want to know Drana's story. I want to know Jem. You know, I spent a half a day running around a sweltering cemetery trying to find his gravesite. And I, I didn't. I failed at that task. But you know, that search is what's important and that effort is what's important. And everything that the white scientist didn't say is, is recorded and known. And, and let's just stop talking about him as far as I'm concerned. So that book, Delia's Tears, was published in 2010. It's now 2020 and you've done and participated in a second project on these daguerreotypes. What ideas and understandings did you get out of writing that fiction that came to bear or was useful in this project? I don't know if, if there's a connection between the fiction and this project. I mean, Delia's Tears had just come out when we held the first workshop. And I, I was, first of all, astounded at having these eminent scholars whose works I had read to do the research behind Delia's Tears. And to just simply talk to them and listen to them was incredibly humbling for me. And at that point, I really felt I was done. I just felt really spent and that I had spent nine years doing this as a sort of independent project on my own. And I, it, it was done and I wasn't really sure I had anything else to say. And I had written the fiction last. That was the last part because I felt I needed to have all the other work sort of behind me. But I felt really kind of empty at the end of that process. It was sort of exhausting in a way. And it's really only been through the subsequent 10 years of creating this new book that I've kind of revived and come back to it. And that has everything to do with the new research involved and the creative interventions in the book. Mary Mae Weems' photo essay, as well as the, the Harvard students' very thoughtful writings, which conclude the book. I learned so much from all these other people and, and from their perspectives. And it has really made me see the daguerreotypes with very fresh eyes. It's been a whole different process, completely separate in many ways. In 1841, Frederick Douglass first sat for a daguerreotype. The Zeely pictures date to 1850. Is there any sense that Anyone had conversations in antebellum America, whether in Boston or anywhere else, comparing Douglas's representation and presentation of himself to the representations in the Zeely pictures? I think it's very unlikely that 
those kinds of comparisons would have been made. The Zeely daguerreotypes were not known widely. It, it was not possible to reproduce them easily uh, without processes of etching and so forth. And so they didn't sort of cross paths. And as we've discussed a little, they were sort of bundled up and sent north to, to Harvard and and then we don't really know what happened to them other than one semi-public viewing of them. We don't really know what happened to them. So I don't, I don't know there was much knowledge at all that they existed in the antebellum era. I think they were considered very private images. But there is an extraordinary chapter in the book that really opened my eyes, written by Matthew Fox Amato, about the way that enslaved people used images, including and particularly photographs, in their own lives to connect to to family, to you know share themselves, to see themselves, to in in a certain sense possess themselves. It's an extraordinary chapter, and while I did sort of imagine that Delia would have known what a photograph was, I was very naive, and Matthew really shows that. Even among enslaved communities on plantations, there was a visual literacy and there was an embracing of photography that, that I never suspected the extent of it. But that's separate from whether or not the, you know, the, the great images of Frederick Douglass would have been sort of understood alongside the Zeely daguerreotypes. I don't think the, the two ever crossed paths. I think, and it wasn't really until the sort of Civil War era and the picture of the man with the scarred back when abolitionists started really using these images of abuse for their purposes. I suspect if they'd known about the Zeely daguerreotypes, they probably would have had something to say about it, but I don't believe that ever happened. I'm glad you mentioned Matthew Fox Amato's essay. It's one of the absolute best in the book. And he also notes that as part of that understanding of self that photography can help one to, that enslaved people were well aware of mirrors in antebellum homes in their presentation of, of self-image. It's a really terrific essay. I think you mentioned earlier that John Stauffer, who teaches at Harvard, wrote an essay in this volume. He notes that the Zeely daguerreotypes, quote, participated in one of the great battles in American history, a public battle between demeaning, dehumanizing, and racist depictions of blacks on one hand and representations of their dignified self-possession on the other hand. That battle, as, as of course we know, was both textual and visual, and, and within visual culture and art extended into many media, so from daguerreotypes to paper photographs to paintings. All that's true, of course. And I want to close by asking if you think the models within this project and your broader project, which included fiction, as we talked about a moment ago, are applicable to other photographs, to other visual culture and art made especially in the 18th and 19th centuries in the United States? It's a great quote, because yes, the ethnologists used images. They used images very, very pointedly, you know, stereotypes of, of blacks alongside Greek sculpture in order to set up their hierarchies. The use of images as a way to oppress people. And then you have Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman having their own pictures, their own honorific pictures, portraits made to show who they were and, and who where they came from. 
these conflicts were definitely played out in the time. And I, I, I expect that's what John Stoffer was thinking about. This bringing together a, a group of historians and artists, and in this case, students, to address pictures in this way, is that something that could be done, should be done with other pictures, say, of indigenous people in, in California during the years of the California genocide? Absolutely. I think that, that the way that this project was developed, it was slow, it was thoughtful, it was inclusive, it was sort of sprawling and people left and others joined. And, you know, the two workshops were fantastic experiences. And I think everyone involved will, will never forget them. That kind of that kind of research and scholarship and collaboration seems very rare. I think it can be difficult to get people into a room. And of course, now it seems even harder. <laughs> now it's, it's actually you know, ill-advised. But it was a way to create a community of thinkers who, who came from different disciplines and, and even where they overlapped didn't always disagree, didn't always agree, but discussed in a very open environment. And really thought very deeply and you know there was a viewing of the daguerreotypes on both occasions i believe so we all shared that experience we all we all talked about what this project meant to us and and what we would bring to it and that kind of slow burn that kind of allowing for a lot of fermentation a lot of thought a lot of development i mean enough time passes that each of us have changed in that time and a lot of good comes of that, I think. It, it, is a, it is a great model, and it doesn't have to be on, you know, 15, a discrete collection of 15 images. It could be on anything, really. But it is, it is a great way to approach a subject. Molly Rogers, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.